what conditions are stipulations magic tricks or manipulations interjecting conversation readjust my headphones at certain points for them where so. I had a Frankenstein headset going on. Taxpayer funded from your court system, but it didn't you work with the it. audio. Anyways, here's something that has been weighing on my mind. Good. I started the phase of pseudo-quarantine where I'm going through Seinfeld and... Everyone has to get there. It's the, yes. it's basically the puberty of quarantine. Yeah, so you're in New York and frequently find myself really loving Kramer. And then I remember that mm. Michael Richards is a terrible person who used the N-word on stage. And it, oh, God, it breaks my heart every time. You gotta separate the art mm. from the artist. You gotta separate the Kramer from the actor. Like Woody Allen's, I don't know. I just saw a picture of, of him <laughs> with his good. Yeah. little yeah. No, no, wife. no, we don't need to, let's don't bring Not up actually Woody daughter. Allen's daughter wife right now. That's, that's the last <laughs> thing we need. Um, we have more topical. True. Um, what did you call it? Sex pest. It's a, a sex plague of pest sex pest buffet. Oh, week. buffet. Mm. We'll get. We'll we'll talk more about that next week. We. I feel like we don't. We or don't not. need to. We don't need to uh, c- uh, contaminate this episode with that. Yeah, we'll say that nobody's tugging it on the Zoom right now. Yeah. Okay. Actually, let's just let's set this up. Okay. You're on a Zoom call, right? Let's say you work for I don't know a magazine, and you're on a Zoom call. And you're talking to your coworkers. You're doing, mm-hmm. I don't know, like maybe like some kind of um, play act situation. I'm just legal here. simulation. But like maybe hypothetical. Are you like acting out a Supreme Court thing? Yeah. Okay. I, maybe. Purely hypothetical, Mackenzie. So I don't know. I don't have details. Potentially. But imagine that uh, middle of the day, like 3 p.m., on this Zoom That's call with your coworkers. Come on. Picture yourself there. All right. What are you doing? Tugging it. No, Mackenzie, that's not, oh. that's bad. Oh. That's not the answer we were going for here. Anyway, this is extremely persuasive. I'm oh, yes. <laughs> I'm Mackenzie Brennan. Um, and I really am not tugging it for what it's worth because you guys can't see me at home. Both um, of your hands up right now, young lady. Thank yep. you. Up and out. I and Adam. <laughs> oh, I do. Um, to pivot to the professional. <clears throat> We have a special friend on the Zoom today. Ben Bolt is a documentary filmmaker. Um, He's coming on today to speak about the forthcoming documentary, Beyond the Blue Wall. And we're going to dive a little bit into police reform and systemic problems within individual departments and um, the policy and legal history behind some of those issues. So, Ben... And Mackenzie know each other, have known each other for a long time. Yeah, Ben, how old were we when we met? I want to say 12 or 13. Yeah, no, that sounds right. Um, So Ben and I went to this nerd camp that uh, you only went to if your parents made you take the SAT at a very young age. (laughs) And if you got a certain score. So Is this like Mensa for sixth graders? (laughs) A little bit, but probably hornier and less hateful. Oh, Mensa's pretty horny. I bet Mensa's pretty horny. Ours is more endearingly horny, I would say. <laughs> yeah, like, innocent. Uh, I went against my will the first year, but then I was. I oh was, yeah. I was up for yeah. it. Yeah. Same. Um. So we took classes like um etymology or logic, or utopias and dystopias. Yeah, cryptography. Wait, wait, wait. Does this mean that you that you two were are formally gifted children? Do you fall into <laughs> yeah. the, that? All See, down. this is. I always the say this because on Twitter, there's there's a conversation. There's like a cycle where Mm -hmm. we talk about how all formerly gifted children are depressed. Everyone, all the formerly gifted children come out of the woodwork and they're like, you know, I used to be gifted and now I'm depressed and bisexual. Like, you know, (laughs) we all are. And, but but I can never relate because I wasn't a gifted child. I was an idiot. Big to differ. I ate bird seed. Like I, there was nothing special about me at all. Well, kind of Never the tween shell me. I don't know. (laughs) That diagnosis is good bisexual and depressed because mm-hmm. we'll never live up to who we were it's always going downhill yeah um, the expectations were set so high that yeah we'll never reach them again i miss standardized tests you know? i know it was a, a good way to feel superior for no reason th- except so, that your parents god i want to cyberbully you both so hard right now <laughs> that's how i know i'm not a gifted child. i can take it 
taken a lot before. Uh, ben, in fact, his last year at the camp played Columbia in Rocky Horror Picture Show and did a dynamite dance number in a pink corset. We can take that out if you want, Ben, but I think it's Leave great. it in. Leave it oh, in. Yeah. So, I love that story. That's a, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so, Ben, do you want to tell us, did I get the name right, Beyond the Blue Wall? Yep. Okay, great. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that documentary that you were involved with and how you were involved? Absolutely. Um, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Thank uh, you for joining us. Yeah, yeah really excited to talk to you guys and talk about the, the film. Um, so the, the film is about a former uh, homicide detective by the name of Ken Williams and his story um, of actually being pushed out of his police department after deciding to side with a citizen uh, and help a citizen to navigate the internal affairs process. The citizen was the victim of a racially motivated wrongful arrest uh, in which the facts of the case were, were so clearly against the rules and procedures for arresting as well as there, there was racial epithets and we'll get into that a little bit but basically the case was so clear that this officer decided to break what, what is known as the the blue coat of silence or the blue wall of silence um, and help a citizen to file a complaint against another officer and uh, we learn about what happened to Ken as a result of this decision. And I think that it's worth noting when you say he sided with a citizen, I think that in a police context, it, it's certainly as polarizing as you're phrasing it, but you think about that in virtually any other employment context, and it really isn't that partisan a move to help somebody navigate IA and file a complaint and acknowledge that, you know, a fellow employee did wrong. It seems like for that to be seen as such a, a polarizing action is telling in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably at the root of what this is all about, uh, of, the, of the thing that needs to be fixed most in the system is the attitude towards right. the, the attitude that police departments have towards insulating their officers from uh, repercussions yeah. um, and uh, of this sort of us versus them attitude towards, towards the public and towards the people that they're meant to serve and protect yeah, protecting wrongdoers, certainly. Well, what kind of struck me about this case right away is that instead of there being zero tolerance for um, misconduct, there's zero tolerance for any anyone who steps out of line and calls out that misconduct or helps someone, um, like you said, navigate internal affairs to uh, hold other police officers accountable. So the, prior, the priority is in protecting um, wrongdoing versus protecting the citizens that police officers are supposed to be serving. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this comes in a moment in our country when this is sort of in the spotlight. And I think a lot of people have questions about what can we really do to make a meaningful difference, make a meaningful change in the way that these police departments operate. Um, and, you know, one of the questions we're asking is, is how can you expect any sort of meaningful change to happen when, the, when police officers are disincentivized from uh, acting with moral integrity. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, we can talk about that more a little bit later on. Oh yeah, certainly. Um, I think on the potentially optimistic side that this could be a marker of where we could start with meaningful change because um, we all talked a little bit when we first saw your documentary about how this is a quote-unquote unsexy case. There's no loss of life. The citizen in question, I think you said settled with the police department. Yeah. So they're not really the ones driving any sort of um, push for change. It, right, right, exactly. Um, Ken Williams himself was not fired. He kind of went through this push out that happened in bureaucratic long-term ways. Mm -hmm. um, so these are not the cases that are going to make headlines, but they're probably the ones that pervade all police departments at a much higher percentage than the cases that do make headlines. And there are things that without those big flashy elements to the story, it could at least highlight what's wrong with police departments like this carte blanche to write your internal policies with no oversight. Um, the court systems not really being a check on police departments in the way that they could or should be. So I think those are, are good things to keep in mind as we go through the story. And Ben, do you want to, I don't know that we've mentioned the racial makeup of both sure. the town, police department, and Ken Williams. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a, this is a story from a city called Brockton in Massachusetts. It uh, has about 100,000 people uh, living there. And 
it's approximately 50% African-American uh, and about a quarter, a little bit more than a quarter white with the, the remaining quarter uh, made up of various groups. Um, and this, this uh, case that we're gonna talk about originally happened in 2007. And Ken Williams himself is black. I don't know that we've mentioned that yet. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Ken is a, he is an African-American man. He was one of a fairly small number of minority officers in a overwhelmingly white police department um, in a not overwhelmingly white city. And one thing that jumped out to me was when he was talking about uh, the environment at the uh, police station and in the city itself. Uh, and he said that he was told by his department heads that he would not be put on a team with another black officer because the city wasn't ready, in quotes, the city wasn't <laughs> ready for um, there to be patrolling officers that, that were made up of two, two black officcers. Yep. And so he had to be put with a, a, a white partner, which a again, exactly. When you think about the racial makeup of this city, it, that's mind boggling to me. That is a mostly white department and they are actively working to make sure that there aren't groups of two black officers partnered together. Yeah, it feels like something. I mean, this was, you know, 13 years ago that this, that the case we're going to talk about happened, but that feels like a story you would hear from many decades earlier. Mm -hmm. It's almost shocking to hear that there would be a policy on the books. I mean, the way that the way that Ken describes it, it was like a clear, it was, he requested. Questioned, he, yeah. He requested to be partnered with a, a black officer. Uh, but, you know, you get to choose who you're partnered with. And he sees plenty of white officers choosing white partners. And he, he was denied the opportunity to work with another black officer because the city had a policy that, that was not allowed. So many other weird elements to that, mm -hmm. that you think about how meaningful it potentially could have been for him to, in this predominantly white department, have somebody who understood what he was going through and, and kind of represented a, a friend Yeah, I think you while get a going through the sense, job. I think you get a real sense um, in, the, in the film of how isolated he felt. Yes. Um, and he brings up this, uh, this case of not being able to partner with another black officer as a time when he couldn't do anything. And he had to just sort of uh, sit take that at face value. Yeah, he's a new, he was a yeah. new police officer. Yeah, what are you gonna do? He's learning the ropes. You know, you can't, you gotta pick your battles a little bit. And um, I think this is a battle he chose not to engage in. And then we're gonna talk, we're gonna learn in the film about a, a battle that he did choose to engage in. And then learned his lesson then too. Um, I mean, the other thing that stands out to me about that initial dynamic is it, it's so funny, and you see this in so many contexts now, too. The irony is that you said it sounded like a, a story and policy from another era long gone, but it also sounds like it could have happened now, even though it was 13 years ago. But A sign um, of how little progress we've made, yeah, especially within right. um, departments like that, where there are both policies on the books and just unspoken understood- de facto. Yeah, yeah. Uns unspoken policies that undermine black police officers and their ability to do their job. And handle white citizenry with kid gloves when it comes to their racism specifically, because yeah. Ben, I know in the documentary, in this piece of the interview, Ken Williams had said that the reasoning that his higher-ups gave him for the, the policy, whether it was de facto or de jure, I don't, I don't know, but um, was that the citizens weren't ready Mm -hmm. to, you know, if it was a, a white family or a white person to whom they were responding, that they wouldn't be ready for two black officers. It's like, that's what we're going to cater to. And you, you think of so many times when police don't really consider emotions or mm -hmm. yeah sensitivity, and this is where they choose to be extra sensitive mm -hmm. to racism. <laughs> ben, you, do you want to explain a little bit more about Ken's background and who he was as an officer? So Ken, interestingly, I think we're all in some way familiar with the 1994 crime bill, which is pretty universally reviled at this point. Um, but Ken was actually hired as part of that bill, which allocated funding through what's called the Community Oriented Policing Services or COPS program. Um, Look and I were wondering how they came up with that name. Such a creative <laughs> acronym. Well, you know, it is actually an interesting name because when I, before I learned anything about Ken's story, I thought of the 1994 crime bill in pretty starkly negative uh, terms. Right, because that's what you hear. Upon researching it, I, I realized there were parts of the bill that were trying to make what I would consider to be 
positive, meaningful change in the way that policing happened in America. Yeah, community policing at large, I think funding has since been discontinued for community policing efforts. But yeah, there were pieces of it that were well intended. Exactly. And, and I think it's clear at this point that a lot of those intentions were uh, not put in check by meaningful accountability measures that would that would force sure. them to be spent in the way that they were supposed to be. But yeah. you know, this COPS program was meant to hire police officers to increase a community presence in neighborhoods, bring back the beat cop, you know, the cop who knows you on the corner. Whether or not having an increased police presence is actually beneficial to those communities, uh, definitely up for debate. But the point is that this funding was supposedly geared towards building that community relationship. With the well, it probably beats the alternative, right? I mean, I always go back to like perfect not being the enemy of the good. And if you're thinking about who should be the cop on the corner, at the exclusion of dismantling or retooling the system, which is a conversation that we're only now having, mm -hmm. um, it certainly is better if you have somebody of the same racial makeup, the same you know residential area, because they're going to understand better. So given the if choice- People yeah. who are from the neighborhood, the, the yeah. idea being that if you have people from the community policing the community, um, there's going to be less animosity between the officers and yeah. the people they're policing. And we're going to see exactly that in the film. I mean, this, mm -hmm. is, a, this mm -hmm. is an officer who was trusted and approached by someone in the community because they believed that he would uh, respond to their uh, and he did. harassment. And he did. Yeah. He came through. Yeah. <laughs> he kind of, it worked in the way that it should, but. Uh, and then it didn't. You know, we nipped that in the bud. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Ken was hired as a part of this program um, and began working in Brockton in about 1995. He actually rose very quickly. Um, he became a homicide detective, which is a, you know, a fairly uh, prestigious position in a police department. He was awarded what's called a top cop award, which is a state, it's a, it's a, it's a high honor for a police officer. It reflects, uh, you know, going above and beyond the call of duty. And it was for excellent police work. Um, so he was, this is a decorated uh you know, accomplished police officer uh, with 15 years of experience going into our story. Okay. Back to that COPS program and how it relates to our story specifically. The town, Brockton, Massachusetts, um, had received grants under the COPS program uh, in 2009 and 2011, totaling more than $3 million. And mm -hmm. a stipulation of these grants um, which the intention, again, is to um, hire officers who are known to the community, who are uh, centered in that community, the stipulation being that uh, the hiring will be non-discriminatory. So that's kind of the, the... As with all federal funding, that's a provision that you see a lot of times with uh, anything that's going to a semi-private or local or state level entity, that federal funding is conditioned on anti-discrimination policies and not to spoil where the story is going, but that's often a tool or workaround that a lot of plaintiffs use to enforce non-discrimination policies because it's like, it's the one way that you can use umbrella federal law to crack down on local entities is to say you're getting federal money, so stop doing this thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Ben, could you explain what exactly the incident was that uh, kind of started the ball rolling on this whole situation? Sure. So the, the film centers around um, a case with a citizen uh, by the name of Jose Semido, and he's of Cape Verdean descent. He lived in Brockton. I think he was a business owner. And um, I think around three in the morning, he was visited by some Brockton police officers, including a sergeant, who arrested him without a warrant, um, although they claimed to have a valid warrant. Uh, and in the course of the arrest, they, particularly the sergeant, used racially discriminatory language uh, and gestures, including using some sort of an ape gesture, uh, called him, let me get the wording right. Um, yeah, I think it was, it was something really, it was derogatory, yeah. derogatory terms. He was yeah, mocked and- um, They used the N-word, it sounded like as well, from Ken Williams' yeah, their yeah, account. From Ken, yeah, from Ken's account, it, he did use the N-word as well. That That's not in the record of the, the case files I've seen. I'm a little bit more hesitant to, to level okay. accusation, but- Benefit of the doubt, we'll say that that's in yeah, question, sure. Yeah, African jungle bunny and used ape-like gestures in the course of an arrest that was- uh, illegal because there was no valid warrant for the arrest. Well, and was there, because obviously 
there are certain exceptions for warrant use like exigency. From what you said, there wasn't a whole lot of justification for that, though, either. Do you know what the arrest was supposedly for? And It was concerning the, I think, a bad check that the... Okay. Uh, that's so... ...had supposedly written. Wild so, to me because that's very similar to the George Floyd case as well. That there was that I it was, was thinking supposedly... Breonna Taylor too, going in in the wee hours of the morning with no warrant, but you're kind of yeah, claiming yeah, it was raises the question but, yeah. three in the morning, you know, right? This, was, this actually was something it's not that a violent crime. It's not you know had appeared in court the emergent. day before and had had resolved, and that's why there was no valid Jeez. warrant. Yeah, um, uh, and and certainly when you think of things that are exceptions to the warrant requirement, like exigency, um, you know, that somebody is going to flee or that someone is in danger or that evidence is going to be destroyed, sounds like there is absolutely none of that. And um, not that any of, of that existing on top of that would justify the abhorrent oh, racial behavior. Right. The way that so the arrest there are went kind down. of two levels there, that it, it is an invalid arrest, and there's also police misconduct in addition to, you know, the constitutional violation. Yeah. Um, which I think comes into play because the constitutional violation could only be enforced by the arrestee himself, and he chose not to. Or he settled? Eventually? Yeah. Yeah, he did eventually settle with the city. So after this arrest takes place, um, where he was braided and abused by police officers, was arrested without a warrant, inappropriately arrested. Uh, he was, I believe, held in a jail cell overnight. Um, and then Ken Williams found out about this case because um, the the person who was arrested came to him. So uh, Mr. Smito approached Ken. I, I think they had met once or twice before. Uh, he knew who Ken was. Uh, and he said that he had been wrongfully arrested. And um, in particular, he noted that when he was in jail uh, after the arrest, he overheard the officers saying that he didn't have a valid warrant for his arrest and he was not immediately released upon the officers learning this. felony stupid on the officers part it's like he, Pretty you couldn't write a version of events in which they were more wrong and yet they suffered no repercussions but i think that is that's I the think point I guess. It's, yeah it's obvious that um and this is actually uh, something that ken williams said in the in the documentary as well is he According to him, one of his supervi supervisors actually pulled him aside at one point and told him, we have the best policies in this department because you will not be held responsible for any of your actions. In so many words, I think he used the word accountability. But right. the idea being that these officers were so comfortable with this behavior. They were so comfortable knowing that they wouldn't be held accountable. And that's what allowed this event to the take place was because yeah. the... Uh, the environment in, within the department and um, the the lack of oversight of officers' behavior, which is a problem we know throughout through, in departments throughout the country, that allowed them to abuse people who they came in contact with and fearlessly arrest them without a warrant, talk about the fact that they don't have a warrant in front of the person they're arresting, and believe they're going to get off scot-free because they know that no one is going to check their behavior. And I think even beyond lack of oversight, it's permissive oversight, because it's it's not even that nobody knows that this is going on. It's that they know and they're okay with it. And it's it's interesting to juxtapose that with the professed goal that you're hearing so much now, especially with um, defund the police, which I know that we've talked about a little bit. I think it's mischaracterizingly named, because it sounds a lot more radical than... Um, People might reallocation of funds. Think which is it, what a lot yeah, of people yeah. Are. Not not all activists. Some activists do fully mean defund the police. Others mean reallocation of sure, funds. Sure, but the, the there idea will be an alternative being, in place, right? Um, that's the maybe idea better being suited. radical transformation of how we police in America and crime prevention in general. Yeah, but I do think that the rallying cry of people opposed to that effort is police are there for protection and what are we going to do? I mean, I've mentioned that ad that aired in Arizona that was a little old lady trying to call 911 and is like, we're sorry, Joe Biden has defunded the police. We can't get there for two days. And then, of course, at the end of the commercial, it's, it's presumed that she dies because somebody breaks in. So it's like that is the rallying cry that they are there for protection of the community and that's why they're indispensable. But we're seeing now in practice and this, I, I mean, it's worth mentioning that this is a blue state too, that this is not Arizona. 
Um, and obviously we see it here in New York as well, mm-hmm. that states that otherwise are pretty liberal and um, in a relative sense, do a better job with nonviolence and protecting the citizenry in a more practical way, relative sense, um, that it, it really happens everywhere. And this is a police yeah. problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you, you touched on this a little bit, but I just wanted to, to bring up um, the complacency thing again, because, you know, you have this cop who's going in and using racist epithets and uh, jumping around like a, an ape. You know, that's a bad guy. That's that's mm-hmm. someone we can clearly sit, point our finger at and say, we don't want that. Sure. But what's really more insidious, in my opinion, are the officers who watched that happen. The officers yes. at the jail who realized that this guy didn't have a valid warrant. The officers who later on would, you know, take sides against Ken uh, and the lack of support that he had in his decision. Like, yeah, you're going to have these terrible people. Unfortunately, they're going to slip through the cracks and become police officers and get power. That will probably happen uh, for the foreseeable future, but it's the attitudes of the people who see their misbehavior. It's a case-by-case example of unsexy that, you know, the human equivalent of the sexy case is the guy jumping around acting like a monkey, but the unsexy cases that are more pervasive are paralleled by the department kind of turning the other way. And yeah. But I think what we need to acknowledge you know, you hear all these bad apple arguments and Mm -hmm. then until we can say, you know, obviously the racist guy who's abusing this man as he's taking him into custody, well, that's a bad apple. But the problem is that when, like you said, when every single person who enabled him and allowed him to get away with that behavior and also led him to believe that that behavior was okay in the first place, because again, if he's so comfortable doing this, A, probably not the first time it's happened, Mm -hmm. and B, he, he knew that he would get away with it. Every single supervisor, every single department head, every single uh, fellow officer who who saw that and did nothing. And it's almost like the boys will be boys version of yeah. like, oh, cops, you know, oh, you know, that they'll do that. That happens. They are just as bad. They are, they are actively contributing to a police force that is uh, not only failing to serve the citizens that they are paid to serve, but they are abusing them and getting away with it. And that the attraction to that power that you might hold as a police officer, um, a, lot, a lot of people are attracted to that ability because they know that they will be protected once they get into those positions of power. It's like recreational violence. And I think that we'd be remiss not to mention that there are institutional um, facilitators too, in terms mm-hmm. of the structure and requirements of police departments across the board. And part of it will come up later in the um, the deference that's given to police departments and police officers on a court level, yeah. which is a huge piece of it and obviously comes home in things like the Supreme Court debate that we're having now, yeah. um, because that's really where, where a lot of the checks and balances play out. But I think the bad apple argument sometimes misses the fact that police departments are designed to facilitate this. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's something that doesn't have a lot of, you know, external qualifying tests that are approved by somebody beyond the police department and the police union. I know that there are some cities and states that uh, look for people who take the police exam and get in the 70% range because anybody with too much critical thought is not going to be a good drone. And so they're filtered out and you see who's left behind. Um, it's people who sometimes fall into that, you know, recreational violence category and and they want an outlet for that. There are cities, um, including New York City, that have civilian complaint review boards that are supposed to, in (laughs) theory, hold uh, police officers accountable for abuse (laughs) on the job. But you can see in places like that, that, first of all, that's not always, is not always without failure. We've seen that many times in New York City where that doesn't always um, actually work the way it's supposed to. But in cities like Brockton, where they may not have these um, outside boards that are completely divorced from the police department yeah. that they can take complaints to, there's just no, there's no way to hold the police department accountable um, except for internally, which obviously wasn't yeah. happening. So Ben, could you tell us a little bit more about um, once, what happened, yeah, what happened next, how the uh, complaint got started and, and got filed? 
Yeah, definitely. And I just wanted to touch on the last thing you said, because uh, I think it is important to note that a lot of small municipalities like Brockton uh, have very, very little power to uh, hmm. punish or even reprimand police officers uh, because they've actually bargained those rights away um, yeah. in mm -hmm. the course of their agreements with police unions. Um, and, and police unions are uniquely powerful as unions go. I mean, you think of teachers unions being a, a powerful parallel, but mostly what teachers unions, for example, are doing is for the employment well-being of teachers, whereas police unions affect things like ways the most to effective police the community, um, how we should respond to the citizenry. It, it's a very technique-based type of union control that you really don't see in any other industry. So it's it's interesting, and especially when you factor in no oversight. Yeah, the you know, the job of a lot of police unions are to protect the worst cops yes. from being held accountable. That is that is what they focus on most of the time. Is yes, there's things like you know benefits and time off and that every union does. Sure, every yeah. union does that. But when it comes to police unions specifically, um, they end up making sure that the worst of the worst police officers are not held accountable. Yeah, and it's funny you should bring up benefits because that's something we're going to get to. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, but to go back to your question of what happened next, uh, Mr. Smito approached Ken. Ken looked at this case, and, you know, Ken at this point had been a practicing police officer in this environment for over 10 years, and he's, he knew what was up. Uh, he knew that these things happen and that there's usually very, very little that these people can do to rectify the situation. And he actually identified this as a unique situation in which it was incredibly clear that something hmm. had happened, that, that, that there had been misconduct, um, in fact, on the police's part. One, because of the just outrageous racist behavior and, and, added, and uh, language that the officer used, but also because of the, the clear uh, lack of a valid arrest warrant. I mean, the, yeah. it's, it's, it really could- Like it's a slam dunk. It, it should have it, been it so easy. Yeah. And so Ken, Ken kind of just, you know, decided that this was, this was worth sticking his neck out for, uh, because this was a case in which where the facts were so clear that there, there might actually be something that could be done about it. And with internal affairs cases, it's very, you know, complaints, it's very difficult and very uh, opaque what happens behind the closed doors. You can file a complaint, but it's pretty difficult to know where that complaint is in the process, if it's being taken seriously. Um, Ken helped Mr. Sumito to file his complaint and then kept him apprised of the progress. Um, and I think... Ken and Mr. Sumito had different impressions of how seriously the police department was taking the complaint. Uh, I think Mr. Sumito felt like he was being taken very seriously and mm, Ken well. was looking behind the curtain and seeing that there, the gears were not actually turning on this. Mm. Well, the, I mean, the impression that we get from Mr. Sumito now or any time post-settlement is going to be one of like, why rock the boat? Because then you jeopardize getting that. You jeopardize getting any sort of uh, yeah, retribution. At this point in the case, uh, you know, he didn't know he was going to get a settlement at all. Um, mm -hmm. He was just given the impression, as most people who probably file a complaint are given, that we are taking your ver your complaint very seriously. Saying the right thing, yeah. sort of idea. You know, you have okay. many options when it comes to policing, and uh, yeah. <laughs> we're grateful you choose us. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah, it's and it's true. This is not Mr. Samito's story. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll give away that he was compensated. He was he was he settled with the. Um, department and you know he's gone on record afterwards saying he doesn't he doesn't hold uh, negative feelings towards the Brockton Police which is department. it's fine I mean it's better than a lot of folks get you think of how many times this actually gets to that point and I know we've seen a lot of cases where police departments aren't even willing to admit enough blame to settle which I think is instructive ironically to the point that Ken Williams was making when he initially decided to help which is that this is pretty bad. If they're willing to settle, um, it does put it in a, a cut above in terms yeah. of yeah. categories of misconduct that right. that is knowledge. Often the only um, the only acknowledgement of misconduct that people get. Yeah. It's it's um, you know we see in cases uh, like the Breonna Taylor case, yes, uh, the George Floyd case, I believe as well. 
uh, the and families. Brianna was hard to get. That was months yeah. coming. So it's not but, easy to get a settlement, a settlement, excuse me. But, um, you know, in New York City, hundreds of millions of dollars per year go to settlements. Um, oftentimes those police officers, and not only in New York City, but elsewhere as well, they are not fired, sometimes not even no. suspended. They are not held accountable in any other way except a settlement, which is Doesn't paid for by pocket. you. It's yeah. paid for by the taxpayer. So you get to pay police officers to abuse you during arrests. Isn't that Which, nice? It doesn't come out of their pockets. It comes out of the pockets of taxpayers. And that's because of uh, qualified immunity in large part. But I just want to note, um, obviously I'm a biased party here, but as an attorney who works for the state, I don't get any of this type of deference. I don't have a union. I certainly, um, none of the records, if there's a complaint against me, are sealed. Um, they'll fire me like that. And I'm also, in a sense, enforcing and applying the law, except that I just happen to go through more schooling and, and external qualification to do so. So, it's a fine. little personal, little, little thorn <laughs> in your side, Mackenzie. You, you have anything else you want to lay on the table at while we're talking about it? <laughs> no. All good. You're good? Okay. Um, fine. I love it. Okay. So well, I did not answer your last question, which is what, what kind of what happened next. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I actually don't know exactly what happened during the internal affairs process. Um, I know that the all the officers involved were interviewed multiple times, uh, many of whom gave conflicting reports about what they had seen and what they were uh, aware of. Um, Idiots. And the resulting report, you know, did very, very little to uh, implicate any police wrongdoing. <laughs> um, I do believe that the sergeant was, you know, the, the, the case was so clearly outrageous on, on his behalf um especially you know he was caught on videotape doing these ape-like gestures uh and he did he did suffer some consequences as a result of this um which is good you know he's he was no longer part of this police department eventually I, it's still not completely clear to me whether he was punished directly for this incident or if it was a uh, culmination of multiple things or if it was a separate thing do we know how long uh that cop in question was on the force. Do we know if he was, had he been on the force for some time? He was a, I don't know the exact answer to that question, but he was a sergeant, which would lead me to believe that he was a, you know, a veteran. So right, he, right. he not only spent time in the police, the police department, but he was promoted at least, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a rookie. This wasn't a guy who was right. his first week on the no, job. Not a rookie. This was a person position yeah. of power. Uh, and he actually had power over Ken um, in their department <laughs> as well. Um, fun, again, the enough, he, he, <laughs> totally unrelated to this case, uh, pled guilty to a marriage fraud uh, following his dismissal from the police force. Uh, that's the which, least of anybody's worries. I mean, is, uh, that's the thing he has to pay for? God he, damn. He was uh, in, a, in a sham green card marriage to um, help a young That's woman. a public service. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine with that. <laughs> it's like how they got Al Capone eventually for tax evasion. Yeah. There so it's, it's the little financial crimes or it's how they got OJ for the, uh, it was you know the robbery. Kind of. It wasn't the murder. There we go. Yeah. Whatever. So, um, I think it speaks to his, his approach to, uh, the law in general. No, absolutely. And loose, baby. Again, if, if, like I said before, if he was, if he had been promoted, if he, he was in a position of power, he was a sergeant, uh, and like if he if he had had you know supposedly probably hundreds of interactions with um, yeah. with people in Brockton, uh, I, I don't believe that that was the first time that he abused yeah. someone. I don't believe that that was the first time that he messed up. But this time it was just caught on camera, and yeah. the guy actually went to the department. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think I think it's spot on that you know you see the result of this, you're like, oh well, he's no longer at the police force. You got fired for this. The system works. Right, I think that's another kind of unsexy way to look at this. And mm -hmm. in this case, I think it's really more the the case here that he he messed up so badly that the police force mm. could no longer cover for him, obscure and insulate his behavior. Yeah, and they sort of had to cut bait on him. Um, but did they make any sort of meaningful change to make sure that something like that wouldn't happen in the future? I don't think so. Yeah, that it's yep. that uh, mentality, but. And like you said, you can look at it, I think a lot of people who defend the system, the policing system, will say, well, the system worked because like you said, he was eventually let go. He was held accountable. 
or you can, you can look at it like that, or you can look at it as the system failed because he became a sergeant. The system mm-hmm. failed because he was allowed to succeed in his career for a long time before he was held accountable. And Ken Williams, yeah. not coincidentally, was also punished yeah. for this. And so I guess we ben, can get more into that. Yeah. Now. Sure. So yeah, Ken, after, you know, after this all went down and the, I, th- I think the punishment to the sergeant had been handed out um, or was in the process of being handed out, Ken began to be retaliated against. Um, he believes that he was retaliated against based on his denial of medical benefits claims. Um, so again, this is, we're getting into this unsexy, you know, it's, they, they didn't say you're fired because you right. stood up for that guy who you're not supposed to stand <laughs> for. No, they said, oh, this blood exposure case that would probably be rubber stamped in any other situation. We're going to take a closer look at that this time. And Oh, did that? Did you submit that? Because oh, you know that's so funny. It's still sitting in our mailbox. Uh, we should, you know, we'll we'll take a look at that now. And eventually, these claims were denied. Um, the first one, the blood exposure, he had to have a third-party arbiter come in and rule that the city did have to, in fact, reimburse him for his medical bills and for his uh, time that he missed work. Based on and this is a homicide detective, so obviously you're going to be, ex- you, you know, it seems like wrote par for the course, whatever. Yeah, I don't know the inner workings of how benefits are applied, but if I know anything about how police unions take care of police officers, right. I imagine that this sort of uh, claim is not usually given as much scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, so and- that, was the first, that was the first claim. Um, and then there was uh, a second claim um, in which Ken was dealing with um, some PTSD uh, after a deadly force incident and was again denied uh, time off and denied benefits um, and had to once again submit additional information, go to arbitration. Um, this, this eventually ended in the, on, the only way that Ken could, uh, it's, it's a complicated, so Ken was going to run out of time off. He basically was mm-hmm. going to come to a point in which he no longer could report to work because of the injury and he had no more time off in, in order to, to use his sick leave. Um, and the only way out of that for him was to disclose that he had a pre-existing heart condition, which actually allowed him to retire. I mean, we, we're getting into the weeds here. Of- but I think that's, that's kind of the point, is that this is the way, even beyond police contexts, this is the way that a lot of discrimination is allowed to exist. And mm-hmm. I know that Brooke and I had talked about this in a previous episode about Bostock um, Supreme Court case that extended uh, Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to LGBTQ plus people. But mm-hmm. the whole with that and with any discrimination protections here is that it really doesn't cover you unless somebody goes as far as to say, I'm firing you because you fall into X category. Right. And nobody's ever going to say that so, once they're told not to. It's not necessary. Why would no. you? I mean, there's, there are cases where you can maybe, you know, appeal. The, you can say, well, I, I believe that, you know, after I came out as trans or after I came out as gay. or It's better you know, than nothing, you, for sure. Yeah. You can say, I felt like I was, you know, let go because of that. In this case, you know. Ken might have been able to say, and he and he later did yeah. say that you know I, I felt like I was pushed out because of this because I helped uh, a citizen file a complaint against a fellow officer. He felt like um, the culture kind of shifted away from him because he had violated that, as you put it, blue coat of silence. And um, so often uh, cases where people are um, either pushed out of uh, of their job or let go, in this case, pushed out. Um, it is this, it's, it's little by little, it's very insidious. It's, it's very bureaucratic. It's, um, a shift in how you're treated and a shift in how, um, how quickly as in this case, how quickly, uh, you know, medical claims are taken care of or how quickly, or, or just how you're treated at your job in general to the point where it's, it's a hostile work environment and you have to leave basically. The burden falls to you to, to walk away. Yeah. And that protects, that protects your employer, um, and it makes you more vulnerable because as long as you, as long as you fall under at-will employment, um, hmm. all of these protections, all these uh, job protections kind of mean very little. That's a question that we come across a lot. Um, when you exhaust the statutory 
remedies or the ideal statutory remedies is um, is the answer in the law or is it in society at large or both um, and, and what should happen when? And maybe this is a good transition to the strategy that Ken ended up using mm -hmm. and how that worked out. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a perfect segue. So, um, you know, Ken eventually did have to retire slash was forced out of his department. Um, he felt that this, that, that something was rotten in Denmark and <laughs> that there was somewhere in here, there was a case to be made that the city of Brockton and the police department was acting uh, in, uh, improperly and illegally. Um, and the, the avenue that he used to make that case, and he made, he actually, uh, to, to borrow an expression, made a federal case out of it, <laughs> was something called the False Claims Act. I think perhaps as you two are more versed in the legal background of things, mm -hmm. you can speak to a little bit more to that side of it. But the False Claims Act uh, dates back to the Civil War, um, when the government was actually contracting with munitions makers and other uh, individuals and companies. Um, and there were many, many instances of fraudulent contracting with the government. Uh, and the government passed this act in order to protect themselves against people taking advantage of uh, federal contracts and federal money. And to expand on that, we have to go back to the community-oriented ori policing program that was cops. Um, cops, like the show, just and the job. <laughs> I just want to make sure everyone appreciated that it's funny that it's called cops. <laughs> we really Very, worked out on this. Our case. lawmakers are so clever in that way. Um, but the so again, community-oriented policing program. Um, gave grants to state and local police departments based on the idea that they were going to build up their community policing uh, within the, each department. Um, and the again, the stipulation, as Mackenzie said, most federal uh, funding is stipulated on um, there being no discrimination in how those funds are doled out. Um, and just to reiterate, uh, Brockton, where Ken Williams was a police officer, received two grants, totaling, I believe, three million um, in 2009 and 2011. So this false claims charge that he made against the city was based on the idea that they were not adhering to the stipulation, the anti-discrimination stipulation within that funding that they received from the federal government. That's correct. That's how I understand it. Okay. Um, so in so many, like such a, a wide array of cases, we talk about how a lot of anti-discrimination cases specifically are an effort to fit a square peg into a round hole because there are only so many things that bottom line the constitution protects. Um, so things like due process and the liberty interest or the property interest in losing your job, uh, they're twisted and I don't even wanna say twisted because I don't wanna give the implication that it's incorrect. They're interpreted with an eye towards things like natural rights, things that would affect your privacy or your life in a way that it's easy to extend. But because enumeration kind of has the effect of ruling out things rather than ruling in after a certain point, there's a lot of this twisting that goes on. And you see that particularly when it's a federalist kind of fight between um, the federal government, which tends to be more inclusive, more protective, or at least willing to make statutes that that have that blanket anti-discrimination provision, uh, trying to find ways to impose that on states that might not be as protective. And that's why you see states' rights often being uh, a vehicle to be discriminatory. I mean, you see it in gay marriage, you see it in abortion, you saw it in segregation and slavery, that states' rights is a way to be like, get out of here, federal government. And a tool that we see often used against that, sometimes effectively, sometimes not, is conditioning of federal funding. So the False Claims Act, even though it might seem a little bit acrobatic to argue it's that such an obscure acts to uh, yeah. use in a case like this. I've actually, um, I've never heard of it being used um, and in a situation been, like this, think. but a very but creative way to, yeah. yeah, very creative way to go about, um, go about getting justice. 
Yeah, well, the federal, the, the sorry, the False Claims Act was uh, actually successfully resurrected in, I think, the 1990s, um, when the federal government realized that they were being, uh, they were being taken for Shafted. a lot of, um, a lot of I think Medicare. Okay, Tubin. I think there was a, quite a bit of uh, fraud on the part of small, small-time Medicare uh, providers, hmm. and they were billing outrageous things and not having the proper training to be uh, billing for things. And, and the federal government was able to use the FCA to to successfully recoup billions of dollars. Um, so this is, yes, this is a novel way of using the FCA, but the FCA had been resurrected pretty recently to to. Uh, serve a different purpose than than how it was originally intended. And it makes sense because you you see the the array of different industries or purposes for which the government might contract with private entities and you often see these sorts of claims arising out of those um uh, you you can see it used in both directions because on the one hand it's kind of how we got anti-segregation and equal protection incorporated on the state level because it's similar, it's not exactly the same, but it's similar in the sense that there was a Supreme Court case where they made the argument that interstate commerce, so again, financial stuff involving the federal government, um, was implicated enough by hotels and restaurants in different states that were segregated. Mm -hmm. And so, it's again this like weird financial contorting to be like, hey, we're going to reach in on a federal level and stop you from discriminating here. But then the flip side being um, when it's used on the other side of a, of a social issue and you, you see things like the Hyde Amendment and um, I think, boy, I can't remember the case, but in abortion contexts, there were cases that predated the Hyde Amendment that said if the institution was using funds for uh, first non-medically necessary abortions and then um, just abortion in general, that the institutions couldn't receive federal funds. So mm-hmm. it, it can be used to either end, but you do often see it used across the board, um, even if it's not the False Claims Act specifically. It, the applicability of these these types of laws is such that they touch a lot of social issues on accident. Absolutely, and, I, and I, if I understand it correctly, that um, his case took sort of a two pronged approach because uh, he was claiming discrimination within the department itself, um, and also I, I I believe he tried to use the the specific case um, uh, of the arrest itself. To, to prove that there was discrimination um, within, there's a culture of discrimination within the department, yep. not only um, based off of his experiences as a black officer, but in how white officers treated black citizens. Yes, and I think the crux of Ken's argument with the FCA case was that the, the city of Brockton and the Brockton Police Department accepted federal funding while engaging in a pattern and practice of discriminatory policing that was uh, outlawed by that contract with the federal Mm. government. And they actually had to certify beyond just accepting, um, I mean, it's kind of formalistic, but that they had to certify each program and each receipt of a grant and sign off essentially on anti-discrimination. Yeah, I mean, that's even, I think that's even more instructive. Yeah, yeah makes Ken's case more, uh, stronger, but. Yeah, uh, so to wrap, just to wrap things up, um, if you could just tell us like, where does Ken's uh, case stand now? So Ken's case uh, was decided last year or maybe earlier this year. Uh, it feels like quite a long year. And uh, he was ruled against. Um, he was not given any relief from the judge. Um, and I think that the rationale is pretty interesting because the, you know, this was a creative way to use the FCA case, and it was kind of a long shot, like FCA uh, amendment, and it was it was a kind of a long shot. Um, and the judge basically, I believe, said that there was no clear evidence that the that the municipality, that the city of Brockton, knowingly defrauded the government. You know, we're not ruling mm-hmm. out that this that this discriminatory policing behavior happened, but we can't say that they knowingly defrauded the government and did Which so. Which is the standard, I assume, with, with that particular statute. Yeah. So your yeah. hands are kind of tied, potentially. Exactly. And and part of the reason that 
that they said that there was not this level of fraud that would constitute a knowing abuse of the contract was that there were actually not recorded cases of criminal outcomes against the police department. There were no, there were not criminal findings. Uh, the police were held liable for their misconduct. That's a catch-22. It's absolutely a catch-22 because why do you think that the police department was never held criminally responsible for any of its misconduct? Because they could pay for it. With some and subtle. criminally responsible is an even higher standard. Yeah, I mean, civilly. civilly and we always talk about how so often because the, the different tiers of the of police accountability are the, yeah. the highest tier is criminally responsible, which hardly ever do any victims or their families find justice um, through the criminal justice system itself. Hardly any police officers are held accountable at a criminal level. Mm-hmm. Then there's the civil level, which we've talked about many times, how um, qualified immunity protects police officers as individuals against being held liable at a civil level in, in many, many cases. And then and also insulates the the qualifying behavior because mm-hmm. in a similar catch-22 sort of way, now the way that qualified immunity is interpreted is to mean that you have to have the specific police misconduct, alleged misconduct, in precedent as mm-hmm. something that qualifies as misconduct. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of ways to argue that it's not specifically, and George Floyd, I think, was our last example of this, was like, well, was it kneeling? And was it this number of seconds or minutes? Well, that's not technically on the books. details. So, yeah. So even that is difficult with how it's been interpreted. And again, to plug the importance of the courts and who's appointed to them and who is appointing justices, that these are ways that, that make even, if you get to that point, it's it's virtually impossible to win and that's right. civil not criminal yeah. and i, and then, say, I think there was a lack settlement. of both i think there was a lack of both criminal and civil findings against the the police department um which but, i would challenge anybody to find a police department that doesn't fall in that category yeah. right exactly because if this you know any settlement will lead to zero paper trail yeah. of of and uh, often with an nda with a non-disclosure agreement yeah. about and no finding or no admission of guilt or liability that's usually a, a stipulation on settlements of that type. So, so yeah. that being the lowest tier of accountability, which is how where, where most of these incidences end up, is uh, is being if you're lucky. Yeah, if you're if you're lucky, you might get and paid they pay out. out. But again, it really is kind of a win-win for the police department because they won't be held accountable at any higher level because you agreed to settle and that comes out of the taxpayer's pocket. That doesn't come out of the police officers themselves or even the department's uh, budgets. That comes out of... So basically, they they can't lose. And the system is set up. And that's kind of what this all comes back to, right? The system is set up to protect individual police officers and police departments from being held accountable. And they never have to pay up for any of their misconduct. It always falls on taxpayers. (laughs) And not obviously... if. So occasionally, occasionally it goes higher if to a higher lucky, level it falls of on us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but generally, um, it's settled, and then they just keep moving forward. People, you know, so often police officers aren't aren't fired. They might get, you know, uh, they might get uh, desk duty for a while, or they might be suspended with pay or without pay. But most often. Uh, there is no repercussions against the individual police officers. There's no repercussions against the department itself. So they can just continue behaving in these very abusive ways. And then it comes back to the fact that, like, because, like you were saying in this particular case, because there was, they were never held criminally liable, Ken Williams, other officers, other people who are kind of victims in, in their own right to these bad policies, they're never able to get justice because um, the system is already insulating it's already working against police officers being held accountable. Yeah. It's already working on behalf of, of these police departments. Yeah, and it is a real, it is a real catch-22 that, mm-hmm. that the a police department could use your tax money to pay someone that they've abused uh, or wrongly arrested or racially profiled. They can pay that person. And then there's no record of them doing anything wrong. And then they can continue to accept your tax money. Yeah. And I really can't think of another industry like that. And all jokes aside, the fact that I am somebody who is applying the law for the state and had to essentially go through a, a higher training level to do so 
there's greater oversight on me and I'm happy to accept that. Um, and, and there's greater less... transparency if I, if I commit wrongdoing. Yeah. And there's, you're, you're held to a higher standard and there's right. less, the way that you apply the law, it will affect people's lives, but yeah. probably very rarely is it uh, as... I won't be inflicting violence on human beings. Exactly. It's the, the way that police officers apply the law is at their own discretion because mm-hmm. they're making the calls in those situations. It can result in injury or death and they are held to a lower st- standard of yes. accountability. And training in the first place. And I think um, the last thing that I did want to highlight that came up in the interview with Ken Williams, Ben, was just protections for whistleblowers in general. And I think that um, on federal and state levels, obviously, the thing that comes to mind is, is the impeachment hearing and repercussions that you always see coming to whistleblowers with the similar question being, is the fix in the law, how could you define the kind of statute that would protect people against that? But maybe attitude and highlighting these kinds of cases is is the best way to do it. That when people speak out against powerful employers or powerful entities, oftentimes they're not protected. And that goes for both colleagues and society at large and their overseers like it's not just a legal sort of protection it's how much we come to their defense and i think of alexander vindman being let go Mm -hmm. after doing arguably the most noble thing that you can do and i think the same thing applies here and yeah where is public opinion in support of those people yeah i mean that's that's i think you're it's, it's frustrating to think about what the solutions to this problem are. Yeah. Um, practical solutions, like you can think about things like, you know, forcing officers to carry their own insurance. Uh, you can think mm-hmm. about giving the community review board subpoena power and give them teeth. Um, but that's a good idea. All those teeth. are good ideas. You do. Yeah. I, I think those are, I think there's like kind of nuts and bolts, like real meaningful changes you could do pretty quickly. I mean, pretty, you know. Yeah. And I think external qualifying to- exams or so, something like, teachers exams that to be licensed to practice in x state or x community you have some sort of entity or person prescribing what you do yeah so there's that type of solution but i think also the changing of attitudes is is equally important um yeah and i think you know the real real sad thing here is that ken was so idealistic when he went in you know i believe that he did go into it for the, the right reasons and this is an example um of of a person with i think good intentions being, being really punished um, yeah. for trying to act with moral integrity. We have to look at the system that punishes people who try to protect the citizens that they're supposed to protect. And, and thus takes them out of the protection force too, because yeah. not only is he punished, but then the community doesn't have that kind of person protecting them. Yeah, and the quality of the department itself is uh, reduced as well, because like, if the good officers who yeah. are willing to hold themselves and others accountable are pushed out, what's left over? Exactly. And we can talk about good apples and bad apples all day. Um, and, you know, there are going to be those horrendous offenders in the system, but it's the, it's, it's the people in the middle who are mm-hmm. they're looking around to see what's allowed here. What am I supposed to do in this situation? What's going to happen to me if I say what I just saw? And when we have yeah. it insulates them in this way, can we be surprised that they side with the bad apple over the, the person who's trying to make, you know, something change? Not really. I, I think it's, I think it's not surprising that yeah. there's the, you know, the level of silence given the way yeah. it's set up. It's a, yeah, it's a system-wide cultural problem, like you said. I think that the only way, I mean, and you know, from a policy standpoint, um, I think ending qualified immunity would help. I think that would um, increase accountability of police officers. Uh, it's there's a lot of pushback from um, Republican lawmakers and um and jurists jurists, (laughs) uh against an unqualified immunity even though as you said before on this podcast because we covered this in a previous episode um qualified immunity was is an idea that was invented by the courts in the 70s so this didn't even exist it's their problem to fix police officers did their job just fine before qualified immunity so everyone who said who is now saying 
well, they wouldn't be able to do their jobs if they didn't have qualified immunity. That's just, that is just patently untrue. And we have proof of that. Anyway, so Ben, can you um, tell people where they can find you personally and where they can find the documentary itself? Absolutely. Um, The film can be found at benjaminbolt.com. We're probably going to have it up on a couple other platforms, but my name is Benjamin, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-B-O-U-L-T.com. And you can see it. You can see the film there. It'll probably be up on a few other platforms, but that's the... the and we'll certainly post it, it on our pages too. So you can find it and me on Instagram at mkzjoybrennan and on Twitter at get me to a nunnery, but the two is the number two. Brooke. You can find me at Brooke Angeline on Instagram and BKE Rodgers on Twitter. Thank you guys again for having me on. And I also wanted to thank everybody who worked on the film because this was not mm. a film that had a budget. Uh, and this was a film that was a passion project of the people involved. And I had a, a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of um, really amazing collaborators who you know, took up this story uh, and spent a lot of their time to make this happen. So I just wanted to credit all the awesome people who worked on this project as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Again, check out. It's a great film. Yeah. Check out uh, Beyond the Blue Wall at uh, at Ben's website. Um, It will be released when this episode comes out. Uh, So definitely go watch it and uh, support support the story being told. Um, Thanks again for coming on. Thanks for support on sexy stories told by (laughs) sexy people.